Welcome to The Theatre, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. The Theatre is an ongoing conversation on surgery and surgical training, featuring practitioners from around the country in discussions ranging from learning and professional development to advances in technology and technique. In this episode, neurosurgeon John Brecknell, head of school for the London Postgraduate School of Surgery, discusses the impact of COVID-19 on surgical teaching and training with RCS educator Elise Mfalos. Though this interview was recorded on the 4th of May and there have been a number of developments with regards to social distancing guidelines in the intervening weeks, the long-term challenges for education posed by the ongoing pandemic remain broadly unchanged. This is the first of a two-part series on reflections on teaching and training during the COVID-19 crisis, where surgeons consider the challenges posed by the pandemic, how trainers are adapting to these challenges, and how the many lessons learned from the crisis may be applied to future care. Brecknell's my name and I'm the head of school for surgery in London and run the core surgical training advisory committee which is the SAC for core surgery. Right I'd like to know uh, how can trainers adapt to they uh, they work to social distancing at the moment? Yeah so the Covid response has dramatically changed the way we all work And that's had an impact on everything. But we're talking today about the impact that's had on teaching and training, uh, with particular reference to surgery, I think. So as we go about the business of what would normally be quite easy, perhaps, meeting a trainee for a supervision meeting, or meeting a group of learners for a small group teaching session, or huddling around a computer image to discuss a case. We have to think again just now. We can't do those things in the same way. What do you do? (laughs) So let's start by thinking about what we can do without being co-located. You and I are having a conversation just now in which we can see some of the emoting of the face and hear the tone of the voice as well as its content. And and, and that's a platform from which I think we can deliver a lot of the one-to-one supervision meetings. And I'm particularly thinking here, I think, about educational supervision, the business of stepping away from the front line of training to discuss progress, uh, aims and objectives, review evidence collections and portfolios, prepare for ARCP, and that sort of thing. And what about this ARCP, so this annual review of competence progression? How can you organize that? That's a bigger um, meeting, I guess. Yeah, so normally an ARCP would take place with a panel of at least three trainers, perhaps of a layperson, perhaps an administrator, perhaps with an external representative from an SAC or similar. And they would be in a room sharing a screen, discussing portfolios, and may at a separate occasion then meet a trainee to tell them the outcome of the review. And that co-location has obviously got to change this summer. HEE and the other statutory education bodies in the UK 
have produced some guidance to help us with this year's ARCPs. Instead of panels getting together physically, the panels will get together online, much as we are here, but with capacity for another few people. They've said that instead of the minimum of three panellists this year, we can do ARCPs with two. Surgery perhaps hasn't come under the same intense pressure that some other areas of specialism, like intensive care medicine, like general internal medicine, who really are feeling the pressure of service right now and might not be able to produce the same number of people for the same amount of time for ARCPs. But anyway, two is enough this year, and three is as much as we want to see. So these panels will come together in minimal form, I think, to spare resource. And, and, and then um, we can screen share using these platforms if there are things we want to point out in portfolios. Or I anticipate that some panels will simply all review the portfolio at the same time on their own screens. And those mechanisms will be used to conduct the reviews in much the same way as, as is done usually, I think. Great to hear that. So I'm under the impression that from the trainer's point of view, you you organize and you're able to run things almost as you know business as usual. What about for the trainees? Do you do you think they have adapted well? Do you think it was challenging for them too? Trainees have had all sorts of challenges this summer. Many of them, especially the more junior ones, have been redeployed to the front line of COVID service provision and have been asked to take part in rotors looking after intensive care units and acute medical wards. And many of them won't have done that for some time. And we know that some of them have felt outside their comfort zones, challenged a little more than is comfortable. But they've shown great spirit and are to be congratulated uh, as a group for the way they've taken up that challenge. How have you adapted to these kind of circumstances as a trainer? That's a difficult question because at times one isn't quite sure what all of the trainees are doing. Because the initial workforce planning for the COVID response was done really quickly, there was a period where not everyone knew where everyone was going and there was uncertainty. I think there still is some uncertainty. But once one's own trainees, the trainees one provides direct supervision for, have been redeployed, one can try to help them make the best for their training of what they're doing. For example, a core trainee who's redeployed to a critical care environment can collect some of that experience as evidence of competency progression against the critical care components of the core surgical training curriculum. For more senior trainees, it's harder to demonstrate curriculum progression, but still the fundamental elements of medical professionalism are the same. And so collecting evidence of talking to patients, working with colleagues, coping with difficult conversations, all of these things can serve towards providing some use of the time for future competency progression. And the JCST have produced some guidance which is embedded in ISCP on how trainees can best collect that evidence. Do you have any other examples maybe or how can 
trainees make the most of this uh, situation, you know, in the light of the training being disrupted as no exam, no elective surgeries or different roles taken. We've talked about them making the most of the experience that they get in redeployment. But there's also a sense in which trainees and their trainers and training bodies need to do everything they can to make the best of the surgical training that is still available. Up to this point in the COVID response, we've seen a lot of surgery just not happening. So most cold elective surgery has been deferred or cancelled. The way we deal with emergency surgery avoids operative procedure where possible. So there is just less operative training, less surgical training perhaps going on because the surgical material isn't available to train on. So it's beholden to all of us to try and make sure that that surgery that is going on is made available to surgical trainees for their surgical training. I know that from, you know, from the teaching on training the trainers when we have talked together and that in normal time, one of the questions participants ask is how can we deal with clashing priorities from trainees? Because in normal time, you have different levels wanting to do different parts of, you know, um, the operation, for instance. How can you plan now during this, uh, you know, disrupted times? How can you organize then to make the mess of the best of the little surgery that takes place? I think on an individual trainee basis, a trainee making themselves available to do a small part of an operation or to contribute to the supervision of a more junior trainee during an operation. They must, I'm afraid still, be very sensitive to the other pressures around theatre utilisation at this time. There is a need, particularly in some high-risk cases, to get things done really quickly and efficiently and in as most technically expert a way as can be managed. So there are occasions where trainees will have to sit and watch or assist whilst a senior operator does the procedure and patience is required there. There may well be frustration. There's a need for safety for all concerned, of course. And we've heard lots of press about surgical operators, both trained and in training, not perhaps having access all the time to the PPE they feel they need. But the use of that PPE, as determined by the government's guidelines, is a vital part of safety. And there are other safety concerns which are there to keep the whole team safe and in fact the whole hospital and the whole system safe as part of our global response to this pandemic. Trainers can do their bit too I think so trainers might know a little more than trainees about where procedures are happening they might not always be in the hospital. We've seen wholesale movements of cancer services to COVID clean sites that are often private hospitals in more usual times. And being able to take a trainee with one to these opportunities, I think is going to form an important part of maintaining surgical training over the next few months as we enter phase two of the NHS's plans for COVID.
and those responsible for organizing programs, the TPDs, the schools, and the wider structures need to really clue in to that intelligence. What are the plans for delivery of service? Where are things going to move? Because then on a wider scale, those leading education can try to move trainees to where the training is happening. Would you advise for trainers to document the experience? Is this something you're doing yourself, perhaps? And again, what would you advise for um, trainees then? We covered already, I think, the business about trainees trying to use all the tools in ISCP to capture what they're doing just now. Uh, and that's going to be an important part of the ARCPs this summer. Okay, there's this stuff missing, but what's there instead? What can we see about what the trainee's been doing instead? And can we use some of that to find compensatory evidence um, that might allow competency progression where it might not otherwise? Trainers in their reports, I think, need also to nod to COVID. So what has the trainee done that's different? Where have they been redeployed to? what surgery hasn't been available to them, what have they been doing instead. So educational supervisor reports this summer perhaps need to pay attention to, to what trainees have been doing instead or because of COVID. Uh, John, I hear a lot about remote consultation skills. What, what is it? Well, you and I, I don't know about you, I'm putting words into your mouth, but I... Um, have never done this sort of thing before. The webcam, which is sitting on my desk, is a purchase since COVID. And I would seek out face-to-face -face meetings. I would go and meet people at their desk and arrange short notice one-to-ones. I'd pick up the phone occasionally, but I'd never done this before. There's been a rapid learning curve. And if there's learning to do in a a comfortable conversation between old friends like this, how much more learning is there to do in a conversation with a patient that one's never met before? Quite rightly, the GMC has written long treatments of the professionalism that exists in the doctor-patient consultation. And to move that all of a sudden into a remote platform like this, is not something that we should expect our trainees or, or our trained colleagues, in fact, to be able to pick up just like that in, with the same degree of expertise as they had face-to-face. -face. How do you foresee the recovery and transition period from a trainer's point of view? There is still uncertainty. We don't know. Um, the number of things we don't know is extraordinary just now. We don't know very much about this virus. We don't know how the pandemic will behave from here. We are starting to see and hear a strong desire from the system to move to some relaxation of social distancing. We've heard uh, at the end of last week, the NHS central framework for that process. Over the weekend, there's been press about the plans from the business community about starting to ease some of the restrictions on their practice. But we've also seen great concern that by going back towards normal, 
we might increase the number of people who are exposed, infected, becoming critically ill from COVID. And so the balance that's going to need to be taken between allowing us to get together again, socially, professionally, educationally, and the need to keep the population as well as it can be is going to be very difficult to do and require great skill. And I think that we'll see things changing on a weekly and monthly basis for the rest of the year. That having been said, the NHS is very, very busy starting to put together the networks needed to plan how it's going to do the urgent and some of the elective surgery that's just laid to one side perhaps for the last six weeks. Where's it going to do it? Who's going to do it? How's it going to be kept free from COVID? And these plans are ongoing. The statutory education bodies are doing their very best to get into those conversations so that as plans are made to move surgery to places where it can best be done under these circumstances, the thought of moving training with it can be there from the beginning. But those conversations are, are difficult and, and, and there's lots of uncertainty with even how they will come together, let alone what their outcomes will be. Do you think there will be more space for online meetings? Do you think you might keep on doing this kind of re remote meeting, follow-up and discussions? I think so. A lot of the large groups that I'm involved with have moved to committee meetings online. And again, they're a bit different. The amount of commuting time one saves, the amount of time traveling between platforms, the convenience of being able to stay at home, the, the increased resource one has with uh, all sorts of things at home, even if it's just space. I don't think we'll ever be able to replace the humanity of a real meeting. But I think that big groups might get together less often and replace some events with these web-based conversations, even if just for efficiency. Regarding teaching and training, though, again, this is something I've come to just in the last six weeks, but I've spent a lot of time in that period writing an online product to replace the learning that normally happens in undergraduate placements in neurology and neurosurgery for one of the London medical schools. How can you replace experience in the clinical environment? Because the clinical environment is shut for undergraduate learning at this time. The first answer, of course, is you can't. Don't be ridiculous. How can you do vocational training without being there? But there are some things, perhaps, that we can do online remotely. And the enormous amount of collective effort that's rapidly been put into products like that, most of them much better than my amateur rubbish, will still be there when wherever this goes. And the amount of work that's been invested in them will want to bear fruit and pay off, I think. I wanted to ask you, John, according to you, what has the surgical training community learned from COVID-19, which they can take forward? Yeah, there, gosh, there are some lessons to learn. And they're not all about remote working. And I think we've probably covered that, although that is really important. We've seen, I think, the community 
come together and in a really impressive, agile fashion, rapidly change the way we do business in everything. And we need to remember that, that ability to almost on the turn of the hour, change from doing things one way to doing things another. We've seen a lot of the big players involved in the surgical community come together and speak with one voice, which they don't always do. And there's some learning there. We have seen or been reminded perhaps during the recruitment process this year of the need to bite our tongue sometimes and not get our own way. And then of course, we've been reminded that the system is more important than us. And those of us who have volunteered to be part of COVID rotors, even if it's just providing muscle for the teams that go around ITUs, turning people prone and putting them back supine again, the need to, at times like this, not be the big, the big surgeon superhero, but just to be part of the team and just to help. We've been reminded of the need to deal with each other as human beings rather than in the strict hierarchies that we often have. I've heard trainees and trainers use first names during the COVID response, really for the first time at work since, since I started. And if we can remember to operate in less steep hierarchies, I think we might see great benefit in the incidents of bullying and undermining going forwards, perhaps. That would be a great outcome. I think I'm talking a lot about the surgical trainees and trainers. And what about the wider surgical teams? Do you think this will have also impact on the relation between team members and the way it's hierarchized and organized? Very difficult to future cast, isn't it? The number of possible futures is great. Perhaps a story from the own my own hospital, the hospital I work as a clinician in, we've seen very different ways of bringing teams together during COVID. COVID teams, non-COVID teams, folk working together from different backgrounds, cross-specialty working, cross-professional working. And rather than just go back to business as usual at some point in the future, we're trying to capture some of that to more efficiently, more effectively staff, particularly at night, the hospitals in the trust going forwards. And one of the drivers for that is it strikes a lot of us that trainees have in many cases been less unhappy, more comfortable at work, feeling part of something meaningful. And so if we can capture some of that team essence going forwards, we might improve all sorts of things. I think that would be um, a great conclusion to our talk. Can, can I just ask you a, a last kind of okay, yeah. question? So, John, do you look forward to being back to you, you know, face-to-face -face training, or do you also enjoy this different period? I greatly look forward to seeing some old friends again, being able to shake hands, share food and drink with people, I think these things are a really important part of the human experience. But I don't look forward to commuting again. Same. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. Thank you for listening. Our two-part series on COVID-19 reflections continues in two weeks with Simon Fleming, orthopedic registrar and PhD candidate in medical education, discussing his experiences in training at the London Nightingale Hospital. 
Further COVID-19 learning resources for surgeons are available on the virtual learning environment at vle.rcseng.ac.uk. For the latest information and updates from the college, please visit our website or follow us on social media.